travel. What do you think of when you hear that word? Exotic locations, adventure, different cultures, or maybe it's the beaches of the world, great food and history. We all conjure up something different, and I think our inner self has a desire to explore new places and exciting locations. But for some, it's not always quite that simple. However, more and more, there's a certain segment of the U.S. population that is awakening to the idea they would like to go where others have only dreamed about to see if there is a better lifestyle out there for them. Hola and bienvenido. This is Gail Turner-Brown, your host of the Monetize Your Travel Show. I'm coming to you from the beautiful city of Medellin, Colombia, the city of eternal spring. My goal for the show is to share with you the people, places, and stories of those who are exploring the world on their terms and still maintaining their lifestyle by discovering ways of monetizing their adventures. Fewer than 16% of the U.S. population has a passport. Even fewer African Americans do. However, some have discovered a world outside of the U.S., these are their stories and experiences of what they discovered about racism, culture shock, and themselves while traveling abroad. And hopefully, it will bring some insight into the myths and the realities of traveling the world while black. In this first episode, I'll introduce to you Brian Sheffy, writer, music promoter, executive, and genealogist. Brian left the U.S. on a six-month trip to England when he was in his 20s and stayed for 30 years. Listen in while Brian shares his journey to becoming British and an American expat. Oh, and by the way, Brian is also my cousin. Thank you, Cousin Gail, for inviting me. <laughs> No problem. No problem at all. So, so here is the deal. This is what I want to find out first and foremost. When did you leave and why did you leave the U.S. to travel to England? I left in the back end of 1989. And the deal was I, wanted, I was only going to go to England. I was specifically went to London with a group of friends from university. I was only going to be there for six months and that I was supposed <laughs> to come back. Best laid plans, you know how that goes. <laughs> um, and I actually felt that I was home. I can't describe it any better than that. The warmth of how I was received and greeted and the opportunities that fell into my lap I took that as a sign and I thought, right, this feels like home. This actually feels more like home than the country I was born in and lived in for 21 years. Um, and that was it. I fell in love with England. Um, particularly, I fell in love with the Irish who were living in England because they kind of took me under their wing. Um, and that was it. Th you know, there was no turning back for almost 30 years. Wow. Wow. So now... You guys could tell Brian has a British accent. 
He did not start out that way. I can tell you that he did not start out that way. So I just, it is so funny to, to hear this accent now that he did not leave here with, but he has it now. So, <laughs> so where, where, where in England did you live? And I, and I, have, I have said, I'm so mad, you said 1989. I mean, gosh, I was in and out of England between 85 and 90 three you know i had gone back and forth to england mm. i know three or four times and so i had no idea that you were there where yeah, I had no exactly? idea you were there <laughs> yeah i know right you had no idea i was there so where where in england did you live uh i was in london for about 15 years and then i was down in cornwall um starting off in a tiny little village called penryn then moving to a larger village called falmouth uh for about another 15 years wow okay all right. So what was it like, especially in, com in comparison? Now, when you left here, you, you were in your 20s. So, mm -hmm. you know, you were really pretty young, but still aware enough <laughs> that you should be able to have some, had some comparison to what it, you just said, you felt like you were at home. What was it about the U.S. that did not feel like home to you? I felt as though I was living in a country that didn't want me there, uh, to be perfectly honest. And there was, I felt as though there was no place for me. And for those of you who kind of aren't familiar with uh, Gail and my family, we come in all shapes and sizes. Oh my God, we come yes. in all kinds of hues and colors and everything. But the cool thing about our family is we were family. We never thought about it. It was never addressed. It was never brought up. You were family. You were family. It didn't really matter what you look like right. but for me especially with our complex kind of mixed ancestry in our family i did i really didn't feel there was a was a place for me because i have the melanin level that i have so i had racism from white people it was even in connecticut the racism was horrific it was nasty it was awful to be perfectly honest right. but i also got colorism from African-Americans. So oh, I really yes. felt that there was just nowhere for me. <laughs> and it really didn't matter in England. People, it was the first time in my life where I can honestly say that I felt as though I was being judged for me. Not how I looked like, not my skin tone, not my hair texture or freckles or lip size or any of that stuff. <laughs> it was literally, can you do the job? Yes, you can do the job. When can you start? Oh, you're living next door to me. Oh, you see, do you want to know the funny thing was? What? The only negative thing that I ever got judged on for that first maybe two or three years was the fact that I was an American. My employers and my neighbors felt that I was going to be rude, obnoxious, loud, ignorant. Because these stereotypes do exist about Americans, by the way. Um, I was judged on that. Not by what I looked like, not by the fact that I was a person of color. They were more concerned that I was an American. Would I understand British culture? Would I understand how British people did things? How they, you know, um, how they interacted, their kind of uh, worldview, as it were. And I guess once I kind of really settled into that kind of life and began to learn about their customs and traditions and how they treat each other and, and all of that, that was it. Doors open, you know, welcome to the family. Um, 
glad to have Connie, you know, glad to have you here. That's not to paint Britain as a utopia. <laughs> Even in 1989, there was still a lot of tensions between white Britons and Indians, white Britons and Pakistanis, white Britons and Afro-Caribbean and Middle Eastern people. But I'm going to have to say that by the mid-90s to late-90s, a lot of that was starting to, ebble, starting to kind of ebb away. Right. And in a lot of ways, English, well, British culture is Black culture. Both groups... What does that um, it means they kind of adopted that British West Indian kind of culture wholesale. Mm. So the way that a lot of British people dress, the language that they use, the slang that they use, the music that they listen to, all of it heavily influenced by what I would call West kind of Caribbean um, Black culture. Well, well, but isn't that also because, uh, I mean, let's face it, uh, the British colonized uh, you know all these areas mm -hmm. in Africa you know they had yeah. they had enslaved people too you know uh, up to a point and so you know all all of that influence um, you know came from that so so isn't it isn't that, isn't that also the reason why it's kind of like not because they were so accepting but uh, but also those are the the, the people that they colonized were became a part of the country and therefore a part of the culture. True. No, absolutely. Um, and especially as colonialism was kind of waning itself out, a lot of those colonial people did come to Britain. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there, there was, um, I guess it's a thing that I'm always kind of proud about my adopted, my adopted country. If it likes something, it will adopt it. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. where it came, you know, where it came from. Right. Take, for instance, Indian food. I mean, India did not do well under British colonial rule. Uh, <laughs> no. But do you know, Indian food is almost more popular than tradi traditional British food. Well, Britain, yeah, because it got what? taste. It has taste. It has, <laughs> it has, spi it has spice. It, it has, has spice. spice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, if you go out on a Friday or a Saturday night, you know, you'll hear young Brits and middle-aged Brits you know, they'll go to the pub and it's like, you know what? I, do you fancy your curry? They're like, yeah, I fancy your curry. Let's go for a curry. <laughs> That's, and I'm talking the most kind of Nordic looking Brits you could possibly <laughs> ever imagine. Do you want to go for a vindaloo? Yeah, yeah, let's go for a vindaloo. Okay, totally wait a minute. Normal. Hold the sauce. <laughs> What's a vindaloo? Okay. What's a vindaloo? Vindaloo is a made-up kind of pseudo-Indian dish that Britons, that a lot of Britons love. It is pathologically hot. <laughs> I, love, I love spicy food. It's too hot for me. Oh, I like I like the top of my, my mouth with its. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's too funny, Vindaloo. Um, again, when it came to interracial dating. I don't, well, actually, I don't really know when it became a thing in, in Britain, but I would, again, by the early 2000s, late 1990s, it, it wasn't a thing to see interracial couples just out and about, just doing their normal thing, whether it's shopping for groceries, going to the movies, going to the pub, just part and parcel of everyday British life. It just wasn't a thing. And I guess the, the other thing is when I, after about maybe, I didn't realize when I arrived in London that I had the Mount Everest of a chip on my shoulder about my race, about my ethnicity. 
that I had inherited from America. And by the time I acknowledged what it was, why I was so angry, because I, I was a very angry person. I had to do, do a lot of anger management from all that, it, just all that repressed anger and resentment. Um, to let all of that go, it was like letting Mount Everest off of my shoulders. And I'm, it was just such a wonderful experience. Wow. It really, really was. So, yeah, so that's one of the things that I noticed um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to <clears throat> conduct this series because I, one of the things I recognize is that a lot of Black folks do not travel outside of the U.S. They are afraid. And, and I think some of it is predominantly because they are afraid being here, you know, being in the U.S. And so they believe that if you go to a country, any other country that is predominantly European, that it's going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? I would agree. And again, a lot of it has to do with research and there's a lot more credible information on online now than obviously there was when we started traveling back, right. back in the 80s and the 90s. Right. So always do your research, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Two countries I was very nervous going to, and this was back in the days when I was managing rock bands, was Poland and Russia. I had heard horrific things about both of them when it came to racism. So I was more than a little nervous having to spend six months on the road split between those two countries. So the first place I walked up to was, was actually um, Poland. And they have these things called culture houses, which are left over from the Soviet Union. So mm -hmm. you can live in the back of beyond. Imagine um, Charles County, Maryland. You know how right. rural that place is. Yes, yes. Imagine if they had this thing called a culture house where top performers come in, you can see ballet, you can see theater, plays, music, that lot, but in the back of beyond. Right. So while the Soviet Union was gone, these culture houses were still there. So you know, these were young rock bands, and we were just traveling all over the place. So we're talking about Poland, parts of Poland, where people still use carts drawn by mules to oh, get wow. from one place to another. We're talking rural. Yeah, that's real rural. <laughs> so I was the first person of color, much less black person, that they had ever laid eyes on. Mm. And I'm like, here we go. I, you know, I've heard I'm going to be asked if I have a tail and if I have this and do we do that. Couldn't have been nicer people. We're talking really, really poor people who didn't have a lot. <clears throat> right. So first of all, they're saving like two months salary to come see these young bands play. But then they're like, obviously sharing their vodka, sharing their food, just really warm, really open, really hospitable. <clears throat> Russia, kind of the same, did get a little bit of a stink eye kind of, because um, they, they have a lot more black people that, that go, to, go to Russia, especially Africans. I never knew that. I never I knew that, even to this day, that a lot of Africans will go to the, to the Soviet Union, one to work and also to study. So I caught a little bit of a stink eye, but on the whole, people were really polite, they were really open, they were engaging, they were curious, you know, they were, once, especially when they found out that I was an American, um, they were really, really curious about what an American who wasn't involved in politics or anything like that actually thought about their country. Um, and it's also worth bearing in mind kind of history, 
as well. The other thing that I knew about Poland in particular was it had been kicked around for centuries by Turkey. You know, they had been enslaved by the Turks, their people had been kidnapped by the Turks, taken back to Turkey, all the rest of it. So there is, I don't want to say that there's a justification for their nervousness or apprehension or beliefs about dark-skinned people. They have a history behind that, though. And especially mm. you have my, my skin tone, which isn't too far removed from a Turkish one. Right. Um, you can kind of see that Pavlovian response. Oh my God, they look Muslim. They look Turkish. You know, um, how many of our ancestors did we, you know, did we lose to the Turks? Right. But again, once they realized that, that you know, I wasn't, and we were all cool and chill, it was fine. That's interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. Did you ever see the movie The White Knight? Uh, I think it was called White Knights. I think that's what it was called. It was a movie with um, Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines. Oh, yes, yes. The tap dancer versus the about the, the right. and Back they in the were, 80s. Yeah. And they were, yeah, and they were in Russia. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying then, come on, y'all. What black person is going to be in Russia? How do you get in Russia? And so I'm not, yeah, I didn't know. I had no idea. You know, I had no idea that there were a lot of black people there. But, but I do remember when I was in... Um, Hungary, when I was in Budapest, um, there were no, I mean, there were no black folks there. But again, it was just like you said, first of all, I thought the men were gorgeous and they treated us so well. And I was with, in fact, I was with my, my sister-in-law and uh, a, another uh, small group of people. And it was so funny, we noticed that when we were in, at dinner, all, we, we had like five waiters for us and everybody else in our group who was not black, they didn't have hardly anybody. So it was, it was like, we were like attracting all of, all of these people, but it was, it was great. I love Budapest. I just thought it was, you know, we, we met the gypsies, which, you know, I didn't, I, it was, that was a lot of fun. So, um, so yeah, it's like I said, you kind of have these ideas in your mind of how you think you're going to be treated. And, um, but it is good to know, like you said, the backstory, you know, that, that there, there are some reasons for why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. um, now, did you find that in most countries you visited was the fact that you were an American um, it sounded like it helped you out in some places. Did it help you out in most places? I would actually say it was a detriment in most places. And I think that probably, one, because I never expected I would ever come back to the States. Come back and visit, absolutely. Right. Um, I know I'm not going to retire here. I will retire elsewhere. Um, but I never thought that I would be back in the States for this long. Um, what I would say is... I love the French. I, actually, I'm going to backtrack. That's part of the reason why I, my accent became a lot more fluid um, and a lot more British because I was immersed in British life. Right. And it's not even just the accent. My worldview is British. I think like a British person. I view the world as a British person would do. So I'm kind of, I'm not kind of, I actually feel like a foreigner in my own country. The country oh, I believe that. I was born in. Yes. Um, just because I've grown and, you know, and as I've grown, my kind of thoughts and viewpoints and beliefs have, have kind of changed and obviously we're, we're influenced by, by Europe. So by saying that, I found that 
even as much as the French and the British may, they may have their issues, <laughs> kind of like cousins who don't, who kind of get along, but kind of like frenemies, basically. Right, I think right. that's, that's the best way to explain it. Um, they were a lot more accepting of Parisians in particular were a lot more accepting of me with the British, with an English accent than with an American accent. It's interesting. Because again, we have that reputation of being uncouth. Well, let me tell you, I have witnessed us abroad and Amer <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. It is really, I mean, I, I remember being at a hotel where this couple was, well, one, they were berating the, the, um, the desk clerk because they weren't being fast enough. Um, they were just rude. They were just really, really rude. And I'm like- Actually, you bring up an excellent point. I don't care if you're black, white, Chinese, Hispanic, Latino, whatever kind of an American you are, when you get on the plane to go wherever you're going outside of the States, forget what you're used to here. That is gonna make your trip far more enjoyable. The room sizes are not gonna be what you're expecting. Bed sizes, not gonna be what you're expecting. Speed of service, because they, a lot of people abroad, especially when they find out that you, you know, you're foreign, they, unlike us, well, some of us, they enjoy speaking to foreigners. They want to find out more about where you come from, right. kind of how you do things. Food portions, forget it. You are not going to get a plate, you know, literally a rack of ribs that's half a table long. You <laughs> might get, you might get five or six, <laughs> but everything is just smaller. There's less, there's just less consumption. Um, and I think that a lot of Americans kind of struggle, struggle with that. Yeah, I, I could, I could definitely see that. Um, I, when <clears throat> my ex-husband and I went to Greece, and we were in a um, pensione, even though that that's Italy, but th but that's what it was. It was like this, this little place. Um, oh my God, it was like so tiny, and then the bathroom was really tiny, um, and it was it was just really weird. It was really weird. It, it, it was. I'm like, okay, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> well, that reminds but, me, the first time I went to India, we were in a restaurant. This was a really nice restaurant. I asked to use their loo. They told me where it was, went there, opened up the door, turned around, went running back to the front desk of the restaurant going, um, I think someone's stolen your toilet. And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? So they're following me. I'm like, no, no, seriously, you've got to come and look. I felt like such a stupid person. <laughs> I'm like, no, seriously, you've got to come and take a look at this. Because all it was was literally a hole in the floor that you had to yeah over to, to do your business. They're like, no, that's, what are you talking about? Like, that's that right there. They're pointing to it. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I'm like, just like when a Rome do as the Romans do when in India, I guess you do what you do with the Indians do. <laughs> <laughs> So now when you were, um, as, as you were traveling around and you went to other countries, what, was, was your reception pretty much the same 
And Anne, did you see any other Black folks? Were there any other Black Americans? Not, not people from Africa, but Americans. Uh, in in Paris, places like Paris and Berlin, the, you know, the big European cities, yes. Yes, I did. Um, when it comes to places that I've been to, like Bhutan, Nepal, Tibet, no. I, I didn't oh, man, you, was in, you were in Nepal and Bhutan? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did not see any Black people at all, period. Full stop, much, much less Black Americans. Wow. Okay, so since you've been since you've been back home, have you have you talked to any other, you know, African Americans ab about your travels? And have you, you know, what have There's, they and what have they said and how have they received it? Not in person. There's a really good Facebook group called Black Travel. Okay, I think that's I think, what it's called. Because <clears throat> I think you're you're on it. I think, yeah, I'm gonna say, I think I belong to that, yes. So, every, you know, every once in a while, so, you know, especially if someone wants to know something about England, Ireland, Scotland, or Wales, uh, we're thinking, you know, where should we go? Where should we eat? What should we do? I'll always chime in on those because I'm more comfortable talking about those. Right. Um, and they're always really appreciative. And I, and I always tend to get really good feedback going, oh my God, thank you for telling me not to eat in, you know, Aberdeen Steakhouse because you know, we, <laughs> people in our hotel ate there. They hated the food. We were telling them, oh, well, this guy in the States said we should eat in this restaurant instead. So they're like, thank you, know, thank you for, for that kind of information. Right. So, okay, because what would you encourage people to do who are from here, who are Black? What, it's like if you were trying, I'll use the word, convince me to travel and I was, because I was apprehensive or I was concerned, what would you say? I would say <laughs> I feel safer traveling abroad than I do, than I feel traveling in the United States. And that's the God's honest truth. <laughs> God's honest truth. I have, let me tell you, someone said, uh, the gentleman that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, he said it, and then I've heard it three other times as I've been doing my research. Someone asked, um, and you can fill in the blank, is XYZ place racist? You know, is Hungary racist? Is Italy racist? And they basically said, <clears throat> if you... <laughs> Can, if you have survived here in the U.S., you will never, it, 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 like it does not get any, it does not get worse. It only gets better. So whatever yeah. you may experience outside, it's nowhere like it is here. And in fact, the, the young man that I interviewed last week, he said, he said American racism is unlike anything else. Would you agree, or and and how how would you differentiate? I think there's only two other countries. One I've been to, one I haven't. Um, to be able to to do an honest comparison, I think there's only two other countries that have a history of racism that is pernicious as American. South Africa is one, which I've been to. Okay. Things are better now. They're by no means. <clears throat> I guess before I move on to the next one. Racism is everywhere. There's right. no getting away from it. Right. I tend to find that racism and poverty, racism and wealth tend to go together. 
I guess most of the people, the majority of people I met, I guess you would call middle class. And it, the middle class people usually tend to be quite right on and liberal and kind of open-minded. So, you know, they're, they're a lot more chill. And I guess where I was traveling, who I was traveling with, whether it was for pleasure or for work, those were the kind of people I was dealing with. Right. Um, but I would have to say South Africa was on par with America and Australia. Equally. Really? Really? Par. Oh, yeah. Things are chilling out more in the more metropolitan cities. This, but I have come across quite a few racist Australians in my travel. It is what it is. You know, I said... And, you, and you so is... And does, so it doesn't matter whether you are American or whether you're from actually Africa or from the Caribbean. It's just, if you're melanated, you gotta have an issue. Well, the classic example is if you're watching the World Cup and especially if you lost, watched the last World Cup. Yeah, now I'm saying something. Have... I, I am not a sports person. I know <laughs> not. I keep seeing all this stuff on Twitter and I'm like, okay, y'all, whatever. So I have no idea what's going on. What's... So you have country, you know, you have, and I'm going to say these are not the best people from these countries, but you have, you know, you had Russians, Bulgarians, Romanians in the football, what we call football, football what you guys right. call soccer, up in the stands, <laughs> whether it was an African team, uh, a South American team, Middle Eastern team, it did not, uh, the monkey chomps, and they were literally throwing bananas on the football. Oh yeah, match. I remember this one, this one Brazilian guy, he picked a banana up and ate it. He was like, yeah. cool, <laughs> thanks for the snack. <laughs> but if you look at where most of them kind of socioeconomically, a lot of them come from very poor backgrounds. So I don't know what the correlation is between poverty and racism. And then again, like I said, you have the other, other extreme, the incredibly wealthy, who are also racist. Right. Now, what I'm going to say is, again, in England, um, especially back in the days of raving, you know, I, I didn't know that I was kind of jumping around like a lunatic next to a daughter of a son of a, a duke or an earl or, you know, a baron or a mark, you know, a marquis, but that they were, you know, they were, they were you know, that's were their parents. And they were really, you know, they were really chilled out. I, you know, got to spend, you know, spend weekends and hunting trips and whatnot um, on the family estate. And their parents were really chilled. And their, you know, their siblings were really chilled. And actually, out of anything about kind of England, that surprised me the most. Because I thought if anyone was going to be like really, really racist, that's where, you know, that's part of British society that we were going to be in. <laughs> and the humorous thing is through genealogy, finding, finding out that we're actually related to quite a few of them. Wow, that was quite a journey for Brian. Have you ever traveled somewhere on vacation or an extended holiday and discovered this feels like home? This is where I belong? And what about your family tree? Maybe it too will lead you to far away places as you discover your ancestry like Brian did with our family. In part two, Brian shares with me some surprises in our family background and totally blew me out of the water. Certain countries have a whole new meaning for me now. Let's listen in and think about what this would mean for you.
interesting. One of the things that Brian has done is our family genealogy. And, and this is another reason why I say, one, go out and explore. Two, be careful about who you're talking about because you will be surprised where your genealogy lies. A lot of times what you think your ancestors are or your lineage is, it ain't. <laughs> it is not that. Um, so do a little bit of a rundown of what you discovered, okay? So, and, 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 and here's the other thing. So Brian is my cousin because my father and his mother were sister and brother, okay? That's how, that's how we're connected. So my dad, his mom, okay? So take it, from, take it from there. So we grew up with stories hearing about how our great-grandfather was this big burly Irishman called Patrick Turner. Yes. That's what we heard. That's what we grew yes. up with. Yes. Do a little DNA test, and where there should have been 20 to 25% Irish, there was 20 to 25% Ashkenazi, Eastern European Jewish. But at least because I knew who all of our other great grandparents were, there was only one candidate that could possibly be. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess um, granddad's father wasn't Irish after all. He was a Eastern European Jewish man. Um, wow. Yeah. To be able to, to finally figure out who, you know, exactly who, who he was. Um, and again, as we were speaking before the show, you know, my sister and I, one of the things we really want to do is visit the kind of ancestral, the ancestral homelands. Right. And again, a lot of it's just been, just been working with DNA, finding out who are, you know, who both are black and are white and well, actually our Native American ancestors all were. Right. That and is those, like, And it was that, those white enslaved families who were at the top tier of Virginia society, who were all the sons and daughters of aristocrats from England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. That's how, wow. that's where we got those connections. That is, that is so wild. That is really, really wild. So yeah, I, I found that totally fascinating. All of the, the, um, the uh, Jewish her heritage, um, and like I said, and not, not just, um, from Eastern Europe, but also from Africa, from Ethiopia, wasn't yep. it? Yeah, and so all of that. <laughs> so I'm Jewish, y'all. <laughs> now, frustratingly, the, the African countries that I would really love to go to, that we have a lot of DNA from, some of the most dangerous countries on the face of the planet, like Somalia. Somalia, I knew it, okay, right. You know, Somalia has won both Congos, which, you know, from missionaries that I know that have gone there and scientists that I know that have, that have gone there to do DNA work. You know, they just say being in the Congo Basin is just, just a, a life-altering experience. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, Boko Haram is kind of running mad all over that place. So right. it's like, so you guys sort out Boko Haram, I think I'm just going to sit that one out. I'm <laughs> at the Congo like that. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, my God. That is, that's amazing. So what, ha what have been your most favorite places to go? And what's been your least, well, I know you already named a few of your least, a couple of your least favorites, but what are your, your most favorite places to go? I think... I was on a really interesting spiritual journey, which is what actually took me to Bhutan, Tibet, and Nepal. Okay. okay. Um, incredible. Uh, just, 
I, for a writer, I'm actually at a, at a loss for words to describe it. To say it was so fundamentally life-altering would be a huge understatement. And I would go back in a heartbeat. I really, really would. Um, just everything from the food and the colors and the textures and the people and the experience and the scenery. Mm. You, know, you can imagine seeing this Buddha that was literally carved out of the face of a mountain 1,500 years ago. Wow. But, you know, people believed in something so much that they did it. And it's stag. I mean, it's something like 200 feet tall kind of a thing. Wow. Um, seeing these honey gatherers in Nepal, again, going up sheer cliff face, cliff faces to gather this wild honey. You know, if they fall, that's it. They're dead. They're toast. Yeah. There's no getting around it. Um, and just the simple joy that people had, you know, they didn't, we talk, we think that stuff is so important. These people have very, very little, but what they have, they appreciate. They have what they need. You know, they, their whole kind of society and, and the way that they live is structured around their environment and what's available. So they don't perceive that they're lacking in any way because they don't have a Volvo or a car or a Gucci bag or Prada shoes or a, you know, Armani suit, or, you know, or a, a Givenchy tie. Right. They don't have any sense. They don't need that. So they don't mm -hmm. feel as though they're missing anything. And that, that, that left a deep impression on me. And um, I came away from there a very different person with, with kind of very different life priorities. Because before that, I was a young executive. I was on the hustle, like every young executive was. It was all about the money working ridiculous hours, like 70-hour weeks, 75-hour weeks. I was there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I thought, you know what? Life is short, and we only get one. And no matter how much money I accumulate, I've appreciated the, you know, the four weeks or five weeks, however long it was between um, Tibet and Nepal. For me, that was like earning a salary of, I don't know, $5 million a year. Right. I could <clears throat> see that. I could see that. And that's one of the things I've begun to understand um, as well. Since I've, you know, gotten older, it's just really interesting because this, this was just my little, my little corner of when I was in California. And well, first of all, because I was traveling from dip to Airbnb to Airbnb, I just started realizing I don't need all this luggage. I need to get rid of this <laughs> luggage. Okay. I'm tired. And tr I mean, I felt like a bag lady, you know, I had all of this stuff. And, um, but I also started thinking what you just said, it's like, you know, we really don't need all of the stuff that we had, that we accumulate. Cause oftentimes we associate, success with how many things we have and as i've been studying other people and looking at where do i want to go next <clears throat> a lot of the countries that i'm looking at people they are enjoying life they are enjoying the connectedness with community um they they have that slower pace like you were saying you know it's like if you come from here if you're coming from the u.s and you decide to go to south america or mexico whatever even in, and in Europe, they got downtime. They've got it's slower. It's like chill out. You know, it's one of the reasons why they live longer because they're not yeah. running around like crazy people, and and they're a lot happier. 
Uh, because the one thing I do know about being in the U.S., these folks are miserable. They are just not happy. They really aren't. And all you can see is what you don't have and what somebody else does have they, that you want. And, um, and so, you know, when you kind of start to let go of that and start really enjoying the things that are, that don't have a price tag on them, you know, you start enjoying what it's like to be outside nature, you know, your heartbeat, whatever, um, you know, you know, because a lot of times, you know, people have a problem with that. So, um, so yeah, I, I totally, I get that. You're right. I would say one of my other favorite places, but it was the most terrifying trip to get there, was Hong Kong. Um, went there for work. I was working for Imagination at the time doing a big um, kind of corporate roadshow. As the planes, it is the most terrifying approach to an airport that I have ever had, apart from my orca, but this is definitely in my top two. Because we're flying in, and there's this mother of a building right in front of us and i'm thinking and i'm trying to eyeball the distance between the belly of the plane where i think the belly of the plane is and the top of the building that is rapidly approaching towards <laughs> us, thinking we ain't gonna make it we ain't gonna make it it's like there's no way on earth we're gonna make that clear that building as the plane is kind of arcing in like this literally wrapping around the building to level out to descend to land i thought this is the nuttiest landing <laughs> I have ever had. But planes coming in from, from places like Europe, that's the route that they have, that they have to go through. Right. But yep, mm -mm, don't want to do that one again. Or if I do, <laughs> I'm going to be blindfolded and the <laughs> Oh, God, that is so funny. Yeah, I've not, I've not been to Hong Kong. I've been to Thailand and Indonesia and Kuala Lumpur, but I haven't, you know, I went to Malaysia, but I haven't, um, I never did Hong Kong. I went to Singapore. I tried to buy Singapore. <laughs> All I can say is, as busy as I know Singapore is, imagine the activity and the energy level ramped up by a thousandfold. That's Hong Kong. That's Hong just Kong. That, just that energy level, just from all the people and all the activity going on around you. Wow, that's 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 amazing. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I'm not sure if I want to be within all that activity, but I would like to visit it. I want to be able to say, okay, yep, I was there, you know, and and see what that that is like. Um, so okay, so you said uh, and I was listening. I was listening to some of the places that you had been. He's like, oh my god, he's been to Mallorca and and all these other places. You you immersed yourself in the British. Um, culture so it's like for all practical purposes you're british and you have a british accent did you learn any other languages french kind of sort of um if anything the french usually ask me to stop speaking french because my <laughs> french is not good um but my my i'm fluent in italian so whenever i would go to france i would speak italian most of them know italian so that was that was fine um, Italian people were amazed that I could speak Italian um, as well as I do. Well, they were confused because, um, as you know, Italy has what's called dialects. Like most European countries, you have the baseline language, everyone can speak that part of the language, but then every region has its own kind of dialect. 
which right. is almost like a, diff a slightly different language. So I'm like rattling away with my hard G's and my hard H's in, in Italian, and people are like, Romani, Romani? I'm like, no, Americano, Brit, you know, Anglesi. <laughs> and they're that, but they're like, you speak it like a native Roman. It's like, yeah, because I was taught how to speak Italian by native Romans. So of uh -huh. course, that's kind of my accent. Um, so the Italians were lovable. They were really, really funny. They, they just found that really, really amusing. Um, so I tend to find that kind of mediocre Spanish and really good Italian uh, in English could kind of carry me through. <laughs> That's good. Brenda and I went to Italy and we used sign language. <laughs> that was the only language that anybody could understand. I mean, it was, I mean, everybody was pointing all kinds of which ways, but I, I will I will have to say until I get uh, have a different experience, Italy was my my most favorite experience because when we went, we went with no agenda. There was no such thing as you have to go to this, that, or the third. We got a map. We happened to go into a map shop, and well, this this pre Google right. This is obviously pre Google days. We go into this map shop, we open up this map, we were in Rome, and we discover, I remember her asking the uh, person, the proprietor of the store, how far was um, Pompeii? And he was like, oh, it's like four hours. And she was like, that's all, let's go. And so we, we had rented a car and I mean, we went to Pompeii, we went to Naples, we went to the Amalfi Coast, which was like, oh my beautiful. God, beautiful. Um, we drove back up and went to Florence and Pisa, um, and then and then back down to Rome. And I think we only, we did it like in like four days. <laughs> That's a, lot of, that's a lot of trouble. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. But again, you know, when you talk about places like Italy and especially France, maybe more of the parts that people aren't familiar with, like the northeastern part of France, the whole country is like a, it is like a jewel box to just kind of rifle through and admire and, ex and explore. Right. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the really remote places in, in even in, in Italy that I went to, like way up in the mountains near Piedmont. Some of the best wine that I've ever had, it was like house wine. So it's like the restaurant house wine, you know, the coming from a vineyard that's probably four or five miles down the road um, that cost probably maybe $3 a bottle. I'm trying right. to do the conversion in my head which is really, really lovely wine, which frustrated me because that kind of wine doesn't travel. I remember my, my wife at the time, we bought this whole crate of wine that we took all the way back down to Varese, which is um, just south of Venice. And we cooked this Italian meal and we couldn't wait to get stuck into this wine. Didn't taste the same. It was something about the mountain air uh, and I think the jostling in the, in the drive, jostled the settlement, it, it did something to the wine. And it just, it was okay. It was all right. But it didn't taste the it same. It didn't taste as the same. That is, that is, that's, that's, 
that's that is fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. See, you make you making me want to get back and go back there. You're making me want to go back there. But so the food, I mean, everything just tasted fresh. Tomatoes yes. tasted the way tomatoes are supposed to taste. Right. Everything was simple. You know, the ingredients. What Italians do with simple ingredients just defies anything. Well, they one, they probably don't. They don't put all that junk in them like we did. Yeah, you absolutely. know. Um, <laughs> I remember being in Germany and eating ice cream. It was like, oh my God, this is so good. I mean, it was, cause it was made from what? Milk or cream and, I mean, you know, it wasn't words that you could not pronounce when you right. look on the side of a box, right? It wasn't that, it was like so good. And so, um, yeah, so everything is fresher, and it, it's, it's, I think it's just really cool. And, you know, I, I constantly want to encourage people to leave. <laughs> leave the U.S., <clears throat> even if it's to Canada, right, um, just to see what it's like and leave your, leave your racial biases and fears here. If you go with an open mind, um, you'll be very pleasantly surprised, I believe. Yeah. You know? And I would also say, because I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, 100%, but it gives you something to compare the United States they to. Should. There's a lot of good things about this country in terms of treatment of melanated people, probably not a, discu a discussion <laughs> for another show, but you'll never understand that and you will never get it or appreciate it until you have something external, an external experience to compare it to. Right. And as we were saying before the show, it's not the same as going to the, because I can hear people going, well, I go to the, you know, I go to the Caribbean, uh, you know, I go to Cuba or Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic, you know, I, I travel outside. That's not, that's not diminishing those because they are obviously different countries, different cultures, and they're, you know, they're amazing too. Right. But especially if you're a melanated person and you're and you, whether subconsciously or consciously going to another country that is predominantly melanated, you're not going to get the difference in terms of how other people treat melanated people. Right. And I would also add, give yourself permission to, to get out of your comfort zone. Right. Um, right. I will not turn my nose up at a, at a dish, even if I don't know what it is. I'll try it. I will always try it at least once. I am sure I've eaten some seriously dodgy <laughs> stuff. Seriously stuff. I know I have. I survived it. You know, I survived it though. Um, and, you know, and again, when it comes to food, just just do your research beforehand. And I'll give you a really simple short story. Uh, the first time I went to Mumbai, stupid me, I. I knew this, but I was so tired, it, I just didn't register it. They brought up this beautiful bowl of fruit, like peaches, and plums, and um, some, some really exotic kind of Indi Indian fruit. And I knew that I was supposed to take the peel, you know, just, whether it's a peach, you need to take the skin off. Anything yeah. like that, you need to take the skin off. And I yeah. didn't bit into it. It was gorgeous, seriously <laughs> lovely food. I was sick as a dog for four days. Oh, so, yeah. God. Yeah. So, you know, do your research. <laughs> make sure you get your shots. Um, but, yeah, just, that, just, yeah. just little things like that. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. It that, 
that happened to us in Egypt. And um, we were being really, really careful. The hotel we were staying in, you know how you have these, I want to call them fountains. You know, they have punch in them. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, some fruit drink or whatever. But it's mixed with water, but you don't think about it. And, you know, and there's just a little dispenser. And so, right. and, and we're in Egypt, so it was really dry. And so, you know, I remember getting a lot of punch. That was the longest flight home ever, okay? I mean, everybody had diarrhea and all kinds of stuff coming back. It was, that was crazy. But I know when I was in Indonesia, I, I had jellyfish. So I did try that. But I've been, one of the other things I've been doing as I've been kind of, like I said, doing research in terms of where do I want to go, I've been watching Anthony Bourdain because I didn't, know, I did not know who he was until he died. And I, you know, I was scrolling through Netflix, I used to see his name. So I knew he had to do with food and travel, but you know, I, I didn't think anything about it. So after he died, I'm like, let me check him out. And I started looking at some of the stuff he was eating. I'm like, I'm adventurous, but I'm not eating. No, okay. The outside, I don't care whether it's outside or inside of pigs. I'm not going there. I'm not eating nobody's dog. I'm not doing that. You know, sorry, people from Asia. No, I'm not doing that. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I I definitely do agree. You have to experiment, and as you said, get out of your comfort zone because you won't know what you really like until you experience something else because it could turn out that you totally hate it but at least you have something to compare you it, it to right yeah, you absolutely tried it and as opposed to when we started our kind of traveling experiences today you have apps you have the internet there are so many different ways that you can look up cultures traditions how you can prepare what you should do what you should right. eat what you shouldn't eat all of that kind of stuff. Right. You got Facebook um, groups like you were saying that you yeah. belong to. You got Facebook groups to ask questions, you know, um, with them so you can get comfortable. And <clears throat> I've noticed in some of the groups, they team up. So Ooh. even if you, you know, you get in there and you find a couple of people that just like, okay, great. I will, I could do this if I'm doing it with someone else, you know, and, and I will say, especially women, you know, they, we kind of like doing things in groups. Uh, one is it is safer, um, but it's it, it, with anything. Cause I know even when I was in, when I was in California, one of the things I missed was having the experience with someone else. You know, when if I saw something I thought was really fabulous, it's like, dang, I'm the only one that's here to see this. <laughs> so you try to capture it. So, so that's the other thing too. A lot of times if you can find someone to travel with, um that may make you feel a little more comfortable mm -hmm. so when you when you venture out you know it's not so much culture shock you know yeah. it's not not so much and i would also encourage people to kind of forget our western ideals of how things should be done so Ooh, i'm really good. really grateful that i went to in, that um that i had that ex had another experience in india where you know they brought out these enormous platters of food i mean because i think there was a party of 20 of us and it's a communal platter. So we're all sitting around a table. Right. There was like bread and every, you know, everything else. And I made sure I had my bottled water. So I <laughs> wasn't good without ice cubes. So, you know, I was, I was good and sound. But then I was like, I'm looking around. And I'm like, something's missing. And do you know when you're just so used to something, but you notice 
something slightly off and you can't quite put your finger on it. Right. There weren't utensils. Well, there weren't utensils. There, was a, there were spoons, but right. there was nothing else. Right. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm really, really sorry to bother you. Can, can I have a, a knife and a fork? <laughs> and they're like, no, we, we, we don't have those. Because it was a real Indian restaurant. It right. wasn't like anything for tourists. This, this is where Indian people would go to eat. Right. So then the, our guest, our kind of host was like, um, no, that's what the bread's for. So we got, you know, having to get used to eating with our hands. Now, one of my travel companions was completely disgusted by that. And I'm like, you did it when you were a kid. When you were a toddler and you couldn't hold your fork and your knife. He's like, yeah, but I'm not three years old anymore. I'm like, this is how they eat. Right, um, right. Suck it up, up. Um, Because I had... You know, and I became quite comfortable and proficient doing that. So when I went to a place like Morocco, okay, I was going to ask that. Completely different, All right. but they don't use you don't use those kind of utensils. Again, you eat with your hands, but there's always something to be able to grasp the food with, whether it's bread or a roll or something. Right, right. So that's yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's interesting. So so the lesson of all of this is get out of your comfort zone. Leave everything, pretty much leave everything westernized behind, especially if you're not going to go to Europe, especially if you're going to South America or India or, you know, places like that where the culture is totally different. You know, even, you know, Africa, same thing. Their places are totally different. You got to leave it behind because if not, then you're going to be miserable and, and you won't enjoy it. And you'll come back you know, ragging on the place you just came from, you know, oh my God, they were so rude. And it's like, no, they just don't do things in the same way. And so it's, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, that's, that's what makes this such an amazing planet, that we have all of those different kinds of cultures and traditions and experiences. It's right. amazing. Right, exactly. So go live life, y'all. Go go totally live it. Get off of your all-inclusive sandals vacation, and, <laughs> you know, and go out. Go do what the locals do if you really want to experience what, what traveling is like. Otherwise, you're just, it's just an extension of being at home, you know. So that's, that's what I would say. So um, I also say don't allow your previous whatever is whatever kind of situations you made negative situations you may have faced because of your race in america don't right. project that onto other people when you leave exactly Again, that's not saying that every other country is idiot free racism free right you can it's everywhere but right. as we were saying before most people are pretty it's again it's not the same way as it is here even if people don't like you they like your money. So they're still going <laughs> to smile at you and be hospitable and have you come into the restaurant or their cake shop or whatever it is, because right. they're going to they're gonna be adults. They're like, okay, you're black, not particularly cool with you, but guess what? I'm going to smile because I know that you're going to give me the money, which right. me and my family need, and you're going to go. <laughs> I'm going to stay here. You're going to camp out here and live here forever. Exactly. I can suck it up for an hour or two. <laughs> And that is so, so very true. But I, I believe most people will find that, that the world is open to you. And, and, and quite frankly, 
because you are American, most people think that you do have money, even though you may not. But in their country, you have a lot of money. <laughs> you know? That's true. They're trying to buy a bag in Switzerland. Okay, well, that's different. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's different, you know, so. And, and, and travel is, is affordable. It's, lots of people think they don't have the money. Yeah, you do. Try doing this. Try not go getting your nails did, just one more time or not getting your weed, you will have enough money, okay? Because you don't really need a lot. You really don't. You know, all, all, all jokes aside, especially depending on the country that you go to, your, the dollar will stretch really, really far. And so, you know, it, it, it really does not take as much as, as you may think. And what you get in the experience, as they say, is priceless. Yep. And so, you know, even if you now have something to compare to uh, that, I just think the experience is priceless. It's something nobody could ever take away from. Right. Well, I am so appreciative that you're coming on and that you share with us what it's like to have been an expat. Oh, I meant to ask you this. I meant to ask you this. I got to ask you this. I got, I'm going to okay. add, I probably end up having to cut it, but I just thought about that. I need you to give me your definition <clears throat> or your difference that you believe is between an expat and an immigrant. Hmm. I don't, honestly, I don't think there is one. Exactly. Interesting. Because I'm going to have to think about that one for a while because funnily enough, in Britain, I was always referred to as an American expat, mm -hmm. <laughs> or as my more liberal leftist friends wanted to say, oh, he's an American in exile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Even though you went and you stayed and you became a citizen and you are integrated into their culture, that's immigration. That's what I have discovered the difference is. And I didn't know it before, not until I started researching and kind of watching all the things that are taking place. And I'm like, well, I'll be daggone. But again, it's interesting which European ethnicities aren't classed as expats, but classed as immigrants. Irish are still referred to as immigrants. Italians are still referred to as immigrants. But Scottish and English, those two, expats uh, expats see so it's because of the history you know because you know britain britain and england and ireland they did not like each other you know and so that's i that's i'm telling so that's what i think they decide to distinguish based on who they like and who they who they want in their country and who they don't want in their country because they have a subconscious kind of pavlovian bell to them you yes. hear the word immigrant and it's knee-jerk reaction. Oh, they're thieves or horrible. Oh, yes. we don't want immigrants. Yes. But you hear expats. Expats. Oh, they've got a bit of money. They have education. They've got yes. skills. Yes. Now you yes. got me thinking. Is <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's what it is. That's right. That's right. So, all right. Anyway, thank you, Brian. I, am, I really do appreciate this. I really do. And you have really opened my eyes and given me some insights and, the, and kind of thinking about some places that I had not thought about before in terms of where to go.
I want to thank Brian again for sharing his amazing journey of self-discovery with me and my listeners. I hope you were able to find a great takeaway from this as well. The world is waiting to be explored by you. Don't allow fear, skepticism, or plain ignorance to deter you from the excitement and richness that is a plane, boat, car, or train ride away. Do you have a travel story you'd like to share? If so, I'd love to hear about it. Just email me at monetizeyourtravel at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share as I'll be uploading new episodes every week. Until then, happy travels. The world awaits.